0: John chapter 7, and uh, if you have a bulletin, you should find an outline inside. There are printed messages at both exits. You can access, get one of those now or later as you like. And um, all of the uh, printed messages are online, and the audio messages will, this one will be up there shortly. We're thinking about maybe next year, by the way, trying to do a uh, remodel of the uh, church website, and so if you have suggestions for me, feel free to email them to me. We probably can't take them all into account, Uh, but I do want to put some money in the budget next year to get that overhauled. It's been like probably 12, 14 years since we've uh, put it up without major change and uh, I just was reading an article on churches and technology, and the guy said, you need to redo your website every year at the la- longest to stay up with this generation. I uh, every year, good night. We're a little behind the curve. So, John chapter 7. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, For he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you were doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I don't go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast uh, and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Dr. James Boyce, who was the the late pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, tells about a time when the staff of his radio program went out on the streets of Philadelphia and uh, asked people the question, Who is Jesus Christ? Sometimes they ask, do you think that Jesus Christ is God? And the answers that they received reveal a lot of the confusion that exists um, with regard to those crucial questions. One young woman responded, Jesus Christ was a man who thought he was God. Uh, Another young woman who was a biology student replied, Jesus Christ is pure essence of energy. To me, God is energy, electric energy, because it's something that's not known. A man answered, well, I think that's something you have to decide for yourself, but he had some beautiful ideas. Or others replied, well, he's an individual who lived 2,000 years ago, who was interested in the betterment of all classes of people. Others said, he was well-liked, or he meant well, he was a good man. But most people, they found, were just simply confused. They answered things like, well, I haven't any idea. I don't know. It's kind of sad when you consider that in our country, anybody can turn on the radio almost any hour of the day or night and flip the dial and learn who Jesus Christ is and hear the Gospel. Uh, But if a person doesn't have a basic knowledge of who Jesus is, then that person cannot trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord because they would only be trusting in a figment of their own imagination. They would be trusting in someone who they thought was this way but isn't really that way. They have to trust in Jesus as he is revealed in the Bible. And so a correct knowledge of who Jesus is has to underlie genuine saving faith in him. And so John labors to make clear in his gospel the answer to what is the crucial question in all of life, and that is who is Jesus Christ. That is the one question you you need to get right. If you miss all others on the exam, that's the question that will graduate you into heaven if you believe in Jesus as who he is revealed to be. And it's an important question, not only for those who have yet to come to faith, but it's also important for those of us who have already believed, because as you know, those of you who are married know this, that human relationships aren't a done deal. Uh, You begin to get to know a person and you get to know them better and better. And hopefully over the years that as you're married, that relationship deepens and broadens and you, you learn more and more about the person. And the same with an infinite person. The Lord Jesus Christ throughout all of eternity will be discovering the depth of the riches of His grace that have been shown to us in Christ. And so the Apostle Paul wrote the little book of Philippians about 25 years after he was converted. And he says there in chapter 3 that his goal is that I may know Him. That I may know Him. And you want to say, well, don't you know Him, Paul? I mean, you've been an apostle for 25 years. Oh, but I don't know Him. I want to know Him better. And so, um, the more that we know of Jesus Christ, of who He is, I think the more quickly we will submit to Him in every situation in life with our, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, and also the more quickly we will trust Him as situations come up in our lives. Now, John 7 and 8 are a unit in John that relates some incidents that happened when Jesus went to Jerusalem to the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles. Uh, And the theme of them is the mounting opposition against Jesus people are getting more and more and more militant against Jesus, at least the Jewish leaders. And it will be about six months after the events here in John 7 and 8 when Jesus is crucified. Uh, John 7.1 uh, says after these things, and that reflects a gap of about six months from John chapter 6. John 6 occurred in the spring around Passover time, And now the Feast of Booze is in the fall. And then John fills in the gap simply by adding, and the other Gospels go into much detail, by the way, on those six months. John adds, Jesus was walking in Galilee for He was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. So he goes up to the Feast of Booze. There were three great annual feasts that all Jewish men were expected to to go up to Jerusalem for. Uh, There was Passover in the spring. Uh, Fifty days later was the Feast of Pentecost. And then in the fall was the Feast of Booze, or sometimes called Tabernacles, when they would build these little uh, huts out of uh, uh, branches and that kind of thing and dwell in them. Passover, of course, pictures the Lord's death for us as our Passover lamb. And the Lord's Supper was instituted in the context of Passover, as you know. And uh, that is right at the time Jesus was crucified. Uh, The second feast, the uh, Feast of Pentecost, pictures the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. And then the Feast of Booths pictures Christ coming again, uh, at the harvest time to harvest his people, and since they dwelled in booths, it's a picture again of God dwelling with his people, even as God dwelt with Israel there in the in the wilderness, as they lived in temporary shelters for forty years in the wilderness. By the way, uh, don't write this in your notes or quote me, but uh, I believe Jesus will come back in the fall when he comes because. Everything he did was on schedule with the Jewish calendar. He was crucified at Passover. Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. What's next? The harvest. And I think it will happen in the fall. So every fall, I kind of get you know, geared up. Yep, maybe this year the Lord is going to come. I don't know, but I I just think that's when he's going to show up. Um, Colin Cruz explains the Feast of Booth this way. He says, The feast had a double purpose to remember Israel's time in the wilderness when they lived in booths, and to rejoice before the Lord after harvest, in particular the grape, olive, and fruit harvest. It also involved looking forward to a new exodus, the time when the kingdom of God would be brought in with all its attendant blessings. And he adds that it was the most joyful of all the Jewish feasts. Um, In Jesus' time, there were two... Um, ceremonies connected with the Feast of Booths. Number one, they would go and draw water from the pool of Siloam and carry it into the temple and pour it out. Now, that would be a picture of the fact that Moses struck the rock in the wilderness and water came out of the rock. And so in John chapter 7, in the middle of the feast, we will see Jesus standing and saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. For out of His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You can see the connection with the water from the rock in the wilderness. And the second feast was a candle lighting ceremony that they would do that pictured again God dwelling with His people in the wilderness. I mean, it's dark out there in that Judean wilderness. And God was there as the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. And so, in this feast, Jesus in John 8, 12 stands and says, I am the light of the world. So, again, great significance in understanding that for this feast. Now, on one level, John 7, 1-13, the verses we're going to consider today, are simply an introduction to the rest of John 7 and 8, but also it reveals to us some wrong views, some views of unbelief, that we want to avoid, uh, as seen here among the Jewish people, including, we'll see, Jesus' own brothers. But also, I believe, if we look carefully, we can see who Jesus is, that He is both Messiah and Lord, and that, of course, fits in with John's overall purpose for his book, and that is, he wants you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, that is, that He is the Eternal Lord, Uh, God in human flesh, so that believing in Him, you might have life in His name. So the main point here of our text is that believing in Jesus for salvation depends on having the right view about who He is. Now, the dominant view here that we're going to have to spend most of our time on is those who have wrong views about Jesus. And many have wrong views about Him. We could sum it up that He is a mere man, whether a good man or some think a misguided man. And we see three groups pictured here in our text. There are, And they're all wrong views of Jesus. There are the views of Jesus' brothers. They're not believing in Him. There's the view of the Jewish leaders. They are vigorously opposed to Him. They want to kill Him. And there are the views of the multitude that are divided First of all, let's look at the views of Jesus' brothers. And they had what I would call a worldly, unbelieving view of Him. Uh, Their mindset was, He needs to go public where it really counts. Uh, The view, uh, or the reference to Jesus' brothers in verse 3 refers to other sons that Mary and Joseph had after Jesus was born. Jesus was conceived miraculously in Mary's womb before she and Joseph had relations. But after that, they had normal relations according to Scripture and uh, had other children. As you probably know, the Catholic Church <coughs> teaches that Mary was perpetually a virgin. That view came in somewhere around the 2nd or 3rd century. Um, but there is absolutely no biblical evidence for that view. In fact, the Bible is against it. And so I think we have to conclude, these are Jesus' half-brothers, the children of Mary, uh, but of course not through the Holy Spirit, through Mary and Joseph in their normal marriage life. Now, although they were unbelieving at this point, we do know from other Scripture that at least two of Jesus' brothers later came to faith in Him. Uh, James uh, and Jude. Uh, he appeared to James after his resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians fifteen. According to the Book of Acts, James later became one of, well, the main leader in the Jerusalem Church, and he wrote the short Epistle of James. Jude, and uh, the way he identifies himself in Jude one is very humble. He says, "Jude, literally a slave." of Jesus Christ and brother of James. But he wrote that one chapter, little letter, right before Revelation, the letter of Jude. Uh, Now in verses 3 and 4, Jesus' brothers come to Him and they offer some what we might call unsolicited career advice. Okay? Here's how you can make it, Jesus, in your career. Leave here... And go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you were doing. And then they give their rationale. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, these things referring to his miracles, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John gives us an interpretive clue of their comment in verse 5 for not even his brothers were believing in him. Now what John doesn't do for us is give us the motive. Why did they say what they said? And commentators are all over the charts. Uh, There are some who say, well, this is really a sarcastic uh, comment. They are ridiculing Jesus. They're saying, in effect, okay, Jesus, you want to be famous? go up to Jerusalem, do some miracles there, and you'll hit the big time. Kind of a sneer in their voice as they said it. They could have, on the other hand, been motivated by family shame. As you know, cultures in the Middle East have a big deal about family shame. And Jesus had been popular, but now He's losing disciples as we saw in chapter 6. So maybe they're saying, go up to Jerusalem, do your thing there, and maybe we can recover the family name. That may, be, have been a, it may have been a motive. Or at best, they may have been offering some sincere, but yet I will argue worldly advice. And that is, look, if you want your messianic claims to be known, you got to leave podunk. You know, Galilee up here is kind of out in the Tuleys. And the action is down in Jerusalem, so it just makes sense. If you want to make it as Messiah, go down there and do your thing in the capital city. Uh, My understanding is probably that was the view that the brothers were thinking in line with the multitude. And we've seen that the multitude has the view Jesus ought to be a political Messiah. They wanted to make him king. And uh, they wanted a Messiah who could deliver Israel from Rome. And so the, the brothers are thinking, well, if Jesus' miracles mean that he's this political Messiah, then he needs to go down to Jerusalem, establish his claim there with the religious leaders and the masses who are uh, flocking to this feast, and not try and stay up here in this obscure uh, Galilee region. I think they might have been embarrassed as the crowd was over uh, his rather strange claim that people eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to have eternal life that we looked at in chapter 6. But after all, he is their brother. And so they didn't turn away as the multitude did. But rather, they're they're getting together and they're talking and saying, you know, our brother could make it if he would just go down there and, and show himself in Jerusalem. That's where he needs to do his thing. And so they come to him completely misunderstanding his divine origin, uh, misunderstanding his mission. I think they probably meant well, but they were totally worldly and um, just uh, off track. I think it was similar, their advice. You can compare it to uh, the temptation that Satan presented to Jesus. Remember, he said to Jesus, Here's what you do. Go up to the temple. Go up to the highest place in the temple. Leap off. Let the angels carry you down gently into the temple square. Everyone will be impressed. I mean, they will be awestruck and you'll have them. They'll follow you. Great advice. So is it to go down and do your thing in Jerusalem. It was a worldly wise... um, marketing strategy that surely would work. The problem was it was satanic at its core. And you know, if I may say so, there are plenty of churches today that use worldly wisdom to market the church. There are even books written on how to market your church. Never forget one time, I don't know, it was probably one of you, but somebody was in the hospital from the church and I was up at the hospital visiting them. And at the bed of this patient was a woman I didn't know who introduced herself to me. And then she said, and I'm the pastor of marketing over at, and she named one of the other churches in town. Now I confess, I had never met a pastor of marketing in my life. I didn't even know such a, uh, an office existed in the New Testament. You know, the pastor of marketing. Oh yeah, I missed that one in the Book of Acts, I guess, or in the is that in the Pastoral Epistles? Where does that occur? I, I've never seen it, but that's what her job was. Now, I understand again, we need to let people know we exist here at one two three South Beaver. We need to let them know what time our services are. But it just strikes me that to have a pastor of marketing is a bit worldly wise and not exactly of the spirit. I want to believe this, that if the Holy Spirit is really at work in Flagstaff Christian Fellowship, I pray and hope that the whole city, in fact the whole country, will hear about it without us going out there and marketing it. And if He's not, then the world shouldn't hear about it. You know? But that's what we want, is for God to be at work in our midst, and then the world will come and find out what's going on. So Jesus replies to His brothers in verse 6, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. Now I'll comment further on verse 7 in a moment, there where He mentions the world's hatred. But then in verse 8, He tells His brothers, Go up to this feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. So he stays in Galilee after his brothers leave to go up to the feast. And uh, then after they leave, he goes up, not publicly it says, but as if in secret. Now, note a couple of things. First of all, obviously Jesus is not lying to his brothers. Uh, there is a textual variant, and it has very good manuscript support, but probably it was a very early attempt to try to resolve what looks like a contradiction. Jesus says, I don't go up, and then he goes up. And so, some early manuscripts read, I do not go up yet to this feast. If you have a King James or New King James Bible, that's your reading. Um, Probably that's not original, but even if he said, I do not go up, the context makes it clear that he meant, "I do not go up yet. I'm not going up with you guys, going up in public with the procession to the feast. Uh, I'm going up in the time and manner that my Father directs me to go up. And so John is showing us here Jesus' firm resolve, as he does all through the gospel, Jesus' firm resolve to say, I follow my father's bidding. Remember in chapter 2, his mother said, uh, hey, there's no wine. And he said, what's that to you and me? My time has not yet come. And then he made wine. (laughs) But he wasn't going to take his mother's bidding. He was doing the father's bidding. Same thing here. He is not going to follow the worldly wise advice of his brothers. He is going to follow the will of his Father in heaven. And so... Uh, his brothers may have meant well, but they were not following the will of the Father. Also, let me just point out, and I'll mention it later as well, but this is an important truth, and it's very sobering. You can be in very close proximity with Jesus. You can even know a lot about Jesus, and yet you can still be unbelieving and lost. Isn't that startling? That is something that ought to just make all of us go, whoa, whoa, here, here his brothers had grown up with Jesus. I cannot imagine what it would be like to grow up with a sinless brother. Can you? You know, he never sinned. And I don't know if they plotted his brothers, let's get him to do something wrong, come on. Uh, but it must have convicted them. I, I mean, at the very least, I must have thought, wow, we're not like he is. Uh, they undoubtedly now had heard his teaching. They knew that he had done many miracles. And by the way, in verse four, when they say, if you do these things, it's in Greek what is called a first class conditional sentence. It kind of could be translated, since you do these things. There's no doubt about it. Uh, they knew he was doing miracles. And so they heard His teaching. They they grew up with Him, number one. They heard His teaching. They saw His miracles. And yet, John says, they still did not believe. And it strikes me that the application is you can grow up in a Christian home. You can see the godly example of your parents and of people at church. You can hear the Gospel from the time you're a toddler and yet not believe. Wow. That ought... To cause all of us to look at our own hearts. The second group, besides Jesus' brothers here, are the Jewish leaders. And the Jewish leaders had a hostile view of Jesus. Uh, they were seeking him, uh, but not so they could learn from him to believe, but so they could kill him. And when John here says the Jews in verse 1, verse 11, verse 13, he, he means the Jewish leaders. Jesus threatened their power. And when people get power, they like to hang on to power. And they use their power to dominate the rest of the people. We see in verse 13 that everyone else was afraid of them. Jesus didn't fit their idea of a political Messiah. He didn't come to play their political game. He wasn't going to reward them with the choice spots in the new kingdom that He set up. And uh, as he showed in John chapter 2, he began his ministry almost by upsetting the tables in the temple and uh, threatening their economy. They had a nice little business going there. And so they did not like Jesus. And I think it's safe to say that these leaders were not reacting to Jesus rationally. They were reacting emotionally. In other words, if they had just stopped and said, wait a minute, this man is doing these miracles. How can he do miracles if he is not God? And in chapter 9, that's the very question that the man whose eyes were opened, the blind man, asked them, well, if he's not God, how can he open my eyes? Any rational person say, yeah, maybe we need to rethink this. But they're reacting emotionally, and that's how a lot of people in the world are who don't believe in Christ. They don't react rationally and say, wait a minute, Jesus fulfills over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. The eyewitness testimony of Jesus is amazing. Everybody who knew Him said He was sinless. He he was killed, and yet He was raised from the dead. And there are many witnesses. Wow, maybe we ought to believe in Him. That would be the rational way to think. But people think, if I believe in Jesus, I've got to give up my favorite sin. Ooh, I don't want to give up my favorite sin. And if I believe in Jesus, I've got to do what He says, not what I want to do. And they don't want to give up their plans. And so people react emotionally based on their sin because they don't want Jesus to rule or reign over them. The third group are the multitude. And they, they have what I'd call an inadequate and mixed view of Jesus. Some said, he's a good man. And others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Verses 12 and 13. There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet, no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, grumbling here, I think, has the nuance of quietly debating among themselves. Uh, we read that they were afraid of the National Security Agency, so they didn't say anything about Jesus out loud, you know? Big Brother was listening in on their phone calls and reading their tweets and all of that, and so they're kind of, no, no, no. You know, they're going back and forth. Uh, some of them they said, and both camps, by the way, were wrong. Some said, he's a good man. You say, is that wrong? Yeah, because it doesn't go far enough. Certainly, that's true. He is a good man, but it's like it's only a slice of the pie, not the whole thing. Um, John Stott, in his book, Basic Christianity, points out, if Jesus was not God in human flesh, he could not have been a good man. And here's why. He's always talking about himself. Always. Have you ever been around somebody like that? All they do is talk about themselves and they make grandiose claims. You know? Uh, Jesus said, If you don't believe in me, you don't have eternal life. And if you do believe in me, I will give you eternal life. Good night. If a mere man said that, you know, we all roll our eyes and go, This guy isn't all there. Uh, Jesus claimed all of the Old Testament was written about Me. How's that for a grandiose claim? You know, in John 5, that's what He told the Jewish leaders. You believe the Scriptures, but they were written about Me. What a claim. He claimed in John 6, as we saw, I am the bread of life. If you come to Me and believe on Me, uh, you will have eternal life. John 7, we'll see that he will claim, if you come and drink of me, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Holy Spirit whom he was to give. Uh, in John 8, he could claim, I am the light of the world. Again, speaking about himself in grandiose terms, uh, you know, he claims in John 8, before Abraham existed, I am. How's that for a claim? You see what I'm saying? He could not be just a good man if he is not God in human flesh. He would be a deluded megalomaniac. We all would go of anybody else who would say that this guy has lost it. You know, he needs to be put away before he does harm to people or to himself. Now the other camp that didn't say he was a good man, They, they thought he was just leading the people astray. These are the traditionalists who say... The ways of the fathers are good enough. We don't need this upstart telling us a new way. Let's just follow the way of Moses and and the prophets. That's good enough. Jesus is a deceiver. Now, think about it. If Jesus is a deceiver, number one, he's a very good deceiver because he convinced many fiercely monotheistic Jews to believe, as the Apostle John did, He is none the less than God in human flesh. And they believed it so strongly that most of them went to martyrs' deaths. On the other hand, if he was a deceiver, he was a very evil and bad deceiver because he convinced people, if you believe in me, you have eternal life. And there could be nothing worse than to deceive people into thinking, this is the way to eternal life and they go to eternal judgment. I mean, that is the, the worst kind of deceit possible. And so both camps are in error. And both errors would result in people still being under God's righteous judgment because of their sins, because neither camp believed in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now you might ask the question though, well, why did these Jewish people, people who had the Scriptures, who saw the prophecies about Messiah, uh, why did they... After hearing Jesus' claim, seeing Jesus' miracles, why did they not believe? And John gives us two reasons here. He shows us that the cause for wrong views about Jesus are either or both. He confronts our sin, and we fear what others would think if we were to believe in Him. He gives these two reasons. They hated Jesus because He confronted their sin, And they were ambivalent, unwilling to commit to Jesus because they feared the Jewish leaders who would expel them from the synagogue. Notice the first reason there in verse 7. The the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. And here's why. Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. We saw a similar thing back in chapter 3 in verse 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light. Jesus is the light. And does not come to the light for fear that His deeds will be exposed. And so, to come to Jesus, you have to allow Jesus to confront your sins. He knows everything about you. He knows every thought you have, every word you speak, every deed you've ever done. And to come to Him, you have to expose your life to the light and turn from deeds of darkness. John writes more about that in 1 John 1, where he says, You know, God is light and him is no darkness at all. And if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with him and his blood cleanses us from all sin. So we have to expose our lives to Jesus. Also, implicit in Jesus' words there in verse 7 is the truth if you follow Jesus, you're not going to be the most popular kid on the block. The world will hate you, just as it hates Jesus. uh, Because they will see your godly life and it will convict or condemn them, even if you don't say a word, if you're honest on the job, if you're upright, if you don't gossip, you know, you, you do a faithful work, boy, you're going to convict everyone else. And they're not going to like you real well. They're going to say, oh, I wish I was like that. <laughs> they're going to want to pull you into it. And then they can justify their own behavior. James, one of Jesus' brothers, as I mentioned, who believed, says this in James 4.4, 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He just draws the line there and says, choose sides. Which side are you on? You can be on God's side. You're against the world. You can be on the world's side. You're opposed to God. Then the other danger here in verse 13, coupled with this desire to blend in with the world, is the fear of what the world will think. You know, wow, if I believe, they're going to think I'm weird. And so fear of the Jewish leaders keeps many of the multitude from openly confessing Jesus Christ. And so John is saying to us here, if you want to cover up your sins and you want to blend in with the whole world, then you will not be believing in Jesus. On the other hand, if you believe in Jesus, just prepare for it. You're going to be an enemy of the world like Jesus was. And you have to be willing not to fear their opinion of you. And that leads us to the only saving view of Jesus, and that is that He is both Messiah and Lord. Now, it's not directly stated in those words in our text, but it's not hard to, to see it here. First of all, Jesus is Messiah, and I think we see that here just in the fact He didn't do His own thing. He wasn't out to be the popular kind of Messiah to be the political Messiah, follow the advice of his brothers. and all He was doing the will of his father who sent him. Uh, They wanted to make him king. He could have gone up to Jerusalem, done a little backroom dealing like politicians in our day do. You know, if you'll vote for me, I'll give you this plum later. And worked out a deal. And he could have emerged as the great popular leader of this new wave that was going to lead Israel against Rome. But Jesus wasn't doing that. He was operating on God's timetable that ultimately led to the cross. Now I'm going to, I think, develop a message um, the week after Christmas on uh, God's time versus man's time kind of thing, thinking about the new year. But uh, just note for here, Jesus tells his brothers in verse 6, My time is not yet here. In this context, I think he means his time to go up to the feast. But he was operating on God's time. And throughout the Gospel of John, there is another word used, my hour is not yet come, that refers to the cross. This right here especially refers to, I'm not going up to the feast in a public way, I'm going up quietly later as my Father directs, but as you know, Jesus came to die for our sins precisely in the Father's timetable After Jesus had accomplished the work the Father had given Him to do, He came to lay down His life for His sheep. He is the Messiah. But also, Jesus is Lord. And I think we see that in He testifies to the world that its deeds are evil, or as we'll see in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Now, the prophets, of course, came and testified to the world that their deeds were evil, but the prophets all included themselves with the world. In other words, they, they would say to Israel, We have sinned. We need to repent. You read the great confession of Daniel, his prayer there in Daniel nine, even though Daniel was such a godly man, he he always identified himself with the sins of his people. Jesus doesn't do that. He came as the light. John chapter 8, verse 46, he says, Which of you convicts me of sin? Boy, that's opening yourself up, isn't it? Which of you can convict me of sin? I wouldn't want to ask that question. Uh, Jesus could. And then Peter testified, we saw last time, you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus could rightly call people to follow Him and promise that He would give them eternal life. In John chapter 7, some officers were sent to arrest Jesus from the Jewish leaders. And they come back and testify in John 7, 46, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. That's because Jesus is the Lord God in human flesh. And so what I'm arguing is, to be saved, you've got to have that basic view of Jesus. Granted, none of us know him fully. That won't be true throughout all eternity, but you must understand that Jesus is indeed the Christ, that is the promised Savior, that Jesus is the Lord God in human flesh, that he gave his life on the cross as a sacrifice for your sin. If you will believe in him, you have eternal life. So let me just sum it up by making three applications here. First of all, again, I already said this, but I want to underscore it. If you grew up in the church and uh, you've you've been familiar with Christian teaching all your life, please, 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 do not be fooled into thinking that your familiarity with Jesus means that you're saved. It doesn't. You must repent of your sin and believe in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. That's a, That applies to every one of us. There's no family plan. It's individual. We must all come to the cross. Second application, if you have believed in Christ, then you have to let Him confront your sin so that you forsake your sin and learn to walk in the light. That's the application from verse 7. God's word tells us how to think, how to speak, how to act. And I'll just say this if you're if you're not letting God's word confront your sin, I mean by reading it often, and as you read it going ouch and and turning from it, then you're not walking with Jesus. That's just the process of growing in Christ. Is you read the word, you say, God, would you show me where my life is is wrong, like David prays there at the end of Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart. Know if there are any wicked deeds in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. And that's how you grow, is letting the Word confront your sin. And then finally, just if you believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, then declare war on the world. You are at war with this evil world. Don't blend in with it. And as James said, you're either a friend of the world and an enemy of God or you're a friend of God and an enemy of the world. Or as John himself puts it in 1 John 2:15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Wow. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Thank You for the Lord Jesus that came from the glory of heaven to this cruddy world. He was willing to wear that crown of thorns to be beaten and spit upon, despised and mocked. And though He could have called legions of angels to deliver Him, He came to lay down His life for His sheep. And Thank You, Lord, that You have called us to Yourself, I pray that as your people, we would all be distinct from this evil world. Lord, I'm especially burdened if there's anyone here who grew up in church and thinks that just being a church-going person and believing in general is good enough, that you would show them, no, they must believe personally and bring them to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.